Welcome to the Center for Lit Podcast Network. You're listening to How to Eat an Elephant, a little book club for large books. Have you ever cast your eyes across a shelf full of classics and been driven screaming from the room by 500-page monsters with thick spines and important names? Then this is the show for you. We're here to take on these scary books together, because how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Well, good morning, friends. Welcome back to How to Eat an Elephant. This section of reading was terrible. (laughs) (laughs) I I confess I did not enjoy this part. I thought this was... I mean, okay. So we have book six and book seven of Cosette, I think, is the overarching chapter heading, isn't it? Well, it beats me. We didn't hear anything about her for two whole books. Exactly. Like, I, I, I hope and I pray and I think even... That this will eventually become important. I think he's setting the stage for the wonderful effect that Valjean and Cosette's appearance in the convent is going to have on the convent and its in its environment. But he didn't tell us that. It's, I mean, like all <laughs> joking aside, like I thought it was actually quite a dense section. Yeah, like thematically speaking. Well, I'm glad to hear that because I was really <laughs> struggling with any connection at all to the story at hand. Well, I'm not quite done ragging on it. I, I'm I'm with Emily. I think there's plenty of thematic material to talk about and that we will get a lot out of this episode. But there were so many chapters. So just so many little chapters about the convent and about, you know, self-flagellation and that kind of thing. And the, every chapter begins with a little line, like just a couple more, just a, f- just, just a few, just a few words more. And so by yeah, the end, I just wanted to say, Victor, who hurt you, buddy? Yes. Like in my margin on chapter eight of this section for today, I think it's in chapter seven, book seven, chapter eight, he goes a few words more. And in my margin, I've written, oh, dear God. (laughs) (laughs) It does feel, there was some Tolstoy level like rage against the nuns in this section. Yeah, he does not like the nuns. He reads a little bit like a boy who might have been educated by nuns (laughs) and isn't really quite over it yet. Hot take. (laughs) I don't know that for sure. Well, (laughs) the amount of times that he goes back to talking about the hair shirt that they have to wear and the way that it lacerates your skin. I just will never get that image out of my head. That's horrifying. Yeah. Yeah. He does not like the ascetic impulse. Not On the fan. other hand, he does. No, I don't think that's true. I think, well, we can, we'll get to the part where he starts to say things that, that make sense. But, but <laughs> the first thing that he does is spends a long time. I mean, I don't know, 40 pages or something. Talking about the fact that, and correct me if I'm wrong here, because this is not a comedy statement, talking about the fact that the time for monastic living has passed from the world. Mm-hmm. And now it represents, and he, he, there's a long, long list of these because he does, he's uses as many images as he can come up with. Now monastic living represents laziness an unwillingness to actually engage Parasite with the things of culture. Society. Yeah. Paras- it's parasitic on culture. And it's also... And this is a really interesting criticism. It also represents pride that that it basically looks at what he considers, it seems, to be true religious affection for God and essentially swaps it for one's own sacrifice instead of the sacrifice of Christ. Am I reading that right? Well, that's one of the angles. Yeah. 
there's, I think there's several things going on and we just jumped right into talking about it without like, I just have to say that I just spent the last week writing papers for my end of term and my brain is fried. And then we got to the section and I was like, oh no, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not ready. Oh, no, no. I'm not ready. It's so dense. There were enough saucy passages where he's like really hating on monasticism in general and enough really punchy word choices that it kept me awake. So I have read more boring things, but this was definitely not taking it easy on you from all of your paper writing. This is a brutal reentry. <laughs> no, you're right. It was on the one hand, there's like, there's just so many intricate things going on, but then also I just couldn't believe it. Who is this Victor Hugo? I mean, we're 500 pages in. He's been fairly gentle mm-hmm. and mild throughout. And then all of a sudden, it's just the, the, the rage, the fury comes out. I'm like, oh, yeah, okay. Like, there's your inner Tolstoy. I see it now. But, okay, so there's the, the theological angle you're talking about. There's the when he's talking about the centuries, mm-hmm. I think that there's a conversation to be had about his description kind of mirroring symbolically his vision of the 19th century. And then there's the figure in the monastery who represents the 18th century. And those are kind of contrasted. Is that the, the I can't remember how the centuri- it. Centuri- I was going to um, say centurion and that's not right. <laughs> Wrong. Cent- centenarian. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like not octogenarian. Like is she's, 100 the, she's years the hundred old. year old woman with the with the the lewd plate that she yes. keeps in her cabinet <laughs> yep. and returns to look at. Because that's part of her rules. I loved that everyone had individual rules that they held to that were totally sacred, but not everyone's following the same order even within this nunnery. That's right. So interesting. Well, and then he also there's a line about this: obedience, poverty, chastity, permanence in the cloister. Such are their vows, rendered much more difficult to fulfill by the rules. Mm-hmm. So there's there's this distinction that he draws throughout, I think, between real devotion and the thing that is to be admired about a cloistered life and the rules, which he, I think, universally considers to be totally arbitrary and unevil. And there's but he does make a difference between those who submit themselves willingly to the rules and those who are subjected to the rules because of things like primogeniture. Yes, although... In my view, the only thing that that line really does for us is, or does for him, is allow him to say, well, I'm all about freedom of choice, though, in humanity, right? It's about freedom and equality and brotherhood and all of that. And so and so, if you choose this, I mean, I, you, you can choose whatever you want. But, but it doesn't say- extend to him necessarily having any approval for no, the practice. But he does say the, the line, we bow to the man who kneels. Like, there's a, yeah. there's a level of reverence. Like, Reverence for prayer. Reverence to some degree. Right. It's a tricky business that he's gotten himself into because clearly what he wants to do is say there ought not to be monasteries and convents anymore. The time for them is over and their effect on people's souls is a bad one. But he is in favor of religion. Not Not for religion. The line is we approve of religion, not religions. Yeah. Right. So I think what he means by religion is 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 devotion to faith. He means faith and prayer and a dedication to to pleading humanity's case before God. But that's as close as he gets, I think, to approving of any of this. Am I am I putting it too strongly? 
A little bit, I think. I mean, I, I, but <laughs> I think, but so did he. Suppose. Well, no, but well, so he, did he. Yeah. That's the problem. That's what makes this so difficult is he also does that and he writes himself into a corner and then he wants to back out of it and say, okay, so let me now describe the perfect society in which we all willingly submit ourselves to God and serve each other and like ball over ourselves trying to outdo each other in good works. And he's like, oh, wait, I just described a, co- a convent. And then he says, so I realized that I just described a convent and I, I, I hold that with an open hand. That's why, I, that's why, in his opinion, he says, I haven't been mocking the convent my even description of it definitely even if he has kind of was oh yeah. my goodness i mean what about this the the long line of in paches that he that he writes right that this person was locked in a concrete box half of which was underwater chained to the wall with an iron collar okay. and, and this person was in pache and that's the third level of meaning right so there's the theological there's the the socio-political imagery and then there's jean valjean and the story of Cosette. So that's clearly like to me that seems like a clear mirror imaging of Jean Valjean's situation being underwater, the man who was underwater and drowning. And there was a there was this really interesting line where he talks about looking back into the past. Oh yeah, and how the past can, if we don't examine it, it can fool us and enter the present in a disguised like a form, mm-hmm. 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 or like a man with a forged passport. Right. Mm. Which is exactly what Jean Valjean is doing. So I wonder if part of this conversation, and this ties to the theological conversation, I think, but that he might be doing this in some way. He might be mirroring the the attitude of the convent in some way. Hmm. I was thinking about that page on 506 in book seven, a parenthesis where he lays out the kernel of the thematic idea. It's a little bit like the allegory of the cave is what I've been thinking, that man's interaction with the infinite is just shadows on the wall, basically, and perversions of something that's good to admire the infinite and try to interact with it with your mind, which he argues is the thing that makes you in the in the image of God. It's the, the internal proof for the existence of God. That is a good thing. To try and interact with that infinite with your mind is a really good thing. But it's twisted and perverted by the fact that you are a man, not a god yourself. So what we can do is reflect on the nature of God and those who want to do that, he should treat them with respect, is what he says on that page. Right. Well, and he definitely seems to start his meditation in that vein. And to me, it it almost reads like he's trying really hard to like think straight about this and to say logical, believable things about religious asceticism and he just can't frankly pull it off because he's not an ascetic himself and doesn't get it and doesn't think it's appropriate the kind of contemplation that he's holding up and it, with reverence is to his mind not aided by this kind of ascetic discipline there's this transition he, he talks about in uh, on 481 in the first chapter in this attitude she prays for all the guilty in the universe and he says this is greatness touching on the sublime right? Yeah, I've got but that then, double underlined. Yeah, then the next page he says, when you see them, you see only the mouth. They all have yellow teeth. Never did a <laughs> toothbrush enter the convent. To brush the teeth is the top rung of a ladder whose bottom rung is dash 
to lose the soul. <laughs> right. I mean, at that point, at that point, you can hear him going, you know what? I, I'm abandoning all hope in this. And we're just going to let's pillory these people. <laughs> and it gets darker and darker from there. I didn't read that in a completely mocking tone, though. Like, I think that he is entertaining. I think he's entertaining the idea that that they are trying to remove themselves from the world and a touch to, to touch the world is to immediately fall into to what, what's the word I'm looking for and defile oneself. Yeah, exactly. And that there's a sense in which that has to be true for his theological point to stand even. Yeah. Well, doesn't he talk a lot about that on in chapter four, the convent viewed in the light of principles, he starts to try to get to the heart of what's good in a monastery, like Ian is saying, with effort, because maybe he doesn't see it that way personally. But he's going point by point, and he starts the chapter by saying, okay, men come together and live in common. By what right? By virtue of the right of association. They can do that. They shut themselves up. By what right? By virtue of the right of privacy. They do not go out. By what right? By virtue of the right to come and go, which implies the right to stay at home. And what are they doing there at home? Well, they're praying, and he starts to talk about the the content of prayer and the importance of a life of reflection, etc. But I thought the most fascinating part of his little treatise to himself on the worth of convents and monasteries was his connection back to the social gospel of France, liberty, equality, and fraternity. He says that the the convent is the is a a strong iteration of that being true in a society. And it's only good insofar as liberty is present. The free choice to enter into a situation like that makes it a valid way of life. And if someone were conscripted, all of it would fall apart. It would be torture, imprisonment. I wonder if that distinction goes even farther into his critique of this particular convent. Because back to the line about him saying their vows... And then he lists the vows and their good vows on the whole are made more difficult by the rules, which is to say the way that an individual religious community structures its its practices. And in that respect, there's nothing good about the rules of this convent. I mean, at one point he even says these nuns are not joyous, rosy and cheerful as daughters of other orders often are. They are pale and serious. Between 1825 and 1833 went insane. Mm hmm. Like there, there is no rescuing the rules of this convent. Well, I'd like to just push back on that slightly, which is on the very next page. He talks about how they enter the monastery. It says on the day, the day on which a novice makes her profession, she is dressed in her finest attire, her head decked with white roses, her hair glossy and curled. Then she prostrates herself. A great black veil is spread over her and the office for the dead is chanted. And even if he doesn't embrace that rule, it's um, really profound imagery that we've mm-hmm. seen many times throughout this novel, right? Death the lovely, life. the life is is crucified, is is dead, and then they walk around her chanting, "Our sister is dead," and the other line responds in ringing tones, "Living in Jesus Christ." And it's that it's that they live on the line, and this is how our section in ends. They live on that line that divides life and death, and they stare into the void, and there's something. And, and he says, they look into the shadows and on the other side is light. And that's the description of the locutary too, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm saying that right. But where they, where they visit the, the outside world, the people stare in 
and they're fascinated on the other side because there's there's something light on the other side of the of the darkness. And so there's the the surface level where what you're saying is true. He definitely thinks that this is too ascetic and he doesn't agree with it. But then also he's using the symbolism of it to talk about his his story and his ideas. Yeah, I think that's probably true. I think that's probably true. I don't know. It's hard though. I mean, I I believe you and I think you're you're uh probably right but it's really freaking hard there's so many sarcastic jabs on his way to trying to rescue himself from having just just cast down an entire way of religious life that predates him by hundreds of years i mean (laughs) like for example um, when he's talking about the little girls that are present in the school right he says they're like a spray of roses at a funeral the young girls frolicked under the eyes of the nuns the gaze of sinlessness does not disturb innocence Okay, we know there's no such thing as sinlessness in Victor Victor Hugo's world, right? That has to be sarcasm. It absolutely has to be. In other words, the idea to him that by this sacrifice, by calling yourself dead before you're dead, you can achieve sinlessness. That's part of the thing he's he's criticizing. Also a double-edged coin. Right. A double-edged coin. We just watched. A double-edged coin. That is a new girl quote. That's a new girl reference. Uh, That's funny. Double-edged coin. That's a double-edged coin. Yeah. You're right. And then also he sense in which he is entertaining the idea that they are striving towards some kind of purity. And then he there's something playful. I wouldn't call it bitter sarcasm. I would call it playful about the moments when he notices them slipping. Like the the mother who stands in front of the the room singing and she forgets the words and goes, Tosila and, like, <laughs> and gets punished for it because everyone starts laughing at her. Right? There's just these moments of life that he where he's like, they're human. They're still human, you know? Well, and I think that he admires the human's attempt, as I said before, to interact with the infinite. He says that the infinite is symbolic or not symbolic, synonymous with idealism. God is the ideal. God is absolute. He is perfect. He is the infinite. And man's attempt to pray is to enter into a conversation with the infinite. And that's a good thing. So he is, I don't think we can throw out the baby with the bathwater. There are things about this aesthetic lifestyle that he is giving place to. He is respecting. And he's also saying this is foreign and maybe even man's interaction with that ideal tarnishes it just because of the fact that he isn't God. And so there are some horrifying things about the way that this that this works itself out here in the the human plane. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think I would even take it one step further, which is to say, man's man's like you said, man's interaction with the divine or his attempts to contemplate it and engage with it is a good thing. By the fact that he is a man, that interaction is tarnished. And to assume that any level of discipline can remove that tarnishing element is utter folly. And since the convent and the monastery are in some senses rooted in that idea, they are utter folly. Like it, you're right that he has respect for the dedication. He's got respect for the the project, but he thinks the projects, the skin the project is walking around in is bankrupt. Well, and he, he and, doesn't say bankrupt. He acknowledges a contradiction. He says on page 517, a convent is a contradiction. Its object is salvation. Its means self-sacrifice. The convent is supreme egotism resulting in supreme self-denial. So the self-denial is not a bad thing. The egotism is, but they go hand in hand. 
And one of those mm-hmm. is good and the other is bad. I don't think that his judgment is negative in the end. Uh, what, I, what I'm trying to say, I, I'm agreeing with you, I think, but I'm trying to draw a distinction between the, the life of the convent and the monastery and the life of faith that he is respecting. And what he's trying to say is those aren't the same. One can dedicate themselves to prayer without wearing a hair shirt. <laughs> it's the hair shirt that he has a problem with, right? And and to the extent to which the hair shirt is synonymous with the monastery or with the cloister is the extent to which he's denouncing the cloister. And I mean, uh, uh, here's another one. In the meantime, let us study the things that are no more. It is necessary to understand them, if only to avoid them. The counterfeits of the past take assumed names. This is your your passport idea, Emily. That eternally returning specter, the past, not infrequently falsifies its passport. Let us be ready for the snare. Let us beware. The past has a face, superstition, and a mask, hypocrisy. Let us denounce the face and tear off the mask. He does not like the convent and the monastery. I don't think there's any way out of that. What he does like is a life of faith. And I think for him, that's defined by prayer and the attempt to engage the infinite. And I want to I want to talk about that. Actually, these two the two ideas that just came to mind go together. I think I was thinking about the line, the very interesting line where he says that the year 1789, which is the year of the French Revolution, swept through Italy and Spain like a cleansing fire. Which whoa, because I don't know, maybe it's just me, but when I think of 1789, I think of like utter brutality and blood yeah right and violence right, and right. he is drawing he's saying this is this is good this is a cleansing fire that that kind of ended i mean and he's right now all these years later we know that he's right that that was a secularizing impulse that swept through europe and like france is no longer a christian nation and neither are <laughs> just to a great extent italy or spain and that year is also the great year of enlightenment and his descri- and I'd love to talk about his description of God because it again reminded me of Tolstoy and does that thing where he talks about personalizing the infinite the infinite must have a me which I think is literally a line from one piece but then also it sounds a lot like enlightenment mm-hmm. thinking he yeah. he seems he wants to give the infinite a face and at the same time seems super unwilling to do so or hesitant to do so in some way. Hmm. Say more about that. Well, I just, I, I'm, I have, I'm having a hard time following him and it could be, it could be that he's just responding to his own era and using the language of his own era to conduct his argument about God, to prove God's existence. I always yeah. have a hard time in the writing from this era, distinguishing between those who are actually arguing for some kind of rationalism and those who are using the language of the rationalists to, Talk about to something make else. a bridge to talk about something into else. something else, yeah. Um, and I guess that's what I'm trying to wrestle with here because he both, he's talking about those who deny the incarnation and then he says, well, they sh- should at least embrace the crucifixion because it was the death of a wise, or they put to death a wise man. He's talking about Voltaire, isn't he? Yeah. He argues that Voltaire would have defended Jesus beca- just because he was a wise man assassinated, not because he was superhuman incarnate. Right. Yep. I I confess myself confused by the constant interjection of Voltaire. This is helpful. Keep talking. Well, that's why <laughs> that's why I bring it up. He does seem to be placing Voltaire on kind of a in, in the spotlight at least as an example of the 
the man of the mind, like Megan was saying. Mm-hmm. And I just maybe, maybe I'm trying to say that I wonder if he kind of has an enlightenment impulse as well in his emphasis on the mind in the life of faith. And I want to, I want to hold that in an open hand because he's about to tell a deeply like incarnate story that has a lot to do with relationship and, mm-hmm. and embodiment. So um, I guess mm-hmm. all of that to say, I'm a little confused. Well, yeah, <laughs> maybe the heart of it is, is right underneath that passage that you're referencing. It's chapter 11 of, I think it's, it's, I don't know if it's book six or book seven, the end of Petit how do you it's say book that? Book six, yeah. Pickpus? Pickpus. Pick, pick I'm afraid pick to say it out loud, you guys. Pickpus. <laughs> well, anyways, towards the end of that chapter, this little passage I think is significant. He says, in the 19th century, religion is undergoing a crisis. We are unlearning certain things, and that is good. I'm thinking now of all of the negative things he's told us about the convent and all the trappings of humanity interacting with the infinite that are perverse. We're unlearning those things, and that is good. Provided that while unlearning one thing, we are learning another. No vacuum in the human heart. Certain forms are torn down, and so they should be, but on condition that they are followed by reconstructions. Yeah, yep. So you're arguing for the second impulse that he's using enlightenment language to have a conversation about something else. Yeah, I think so. I think he's taking what's good in the 19th century, this new vocabulary that enlightenment thinkers have offered and encouraging progress. He even uses the word progress. I can't find it right now, but later on in the the chapter, he's encouraging progress, which has to do with enlightenment and rationality. And that's the, the mode of the times. And I think he might be arguing for not throwing out religion, but applying these new ideas to it and growing in our understanding of the infinite and his relation to human beings, recognizing more the way that man reflects the infinite in God, that infinite me. I don't know. I, I agree with Ian. I think it was Ian who said that this book is about relationships first and foremost. And I think that his big game thematically is the relationship between the infinite outside of man and the infinite within man, that that conversation is the point for him. And I wouldn't put it past him to be using enlightenment vocabulary to do that. I think you're right. I think that's very well said. And the beginning of that same chapter makes me agree with you even more. The whole whole world of the novel is about social issues. Mm -hmm. And his answer to all of the questions raised by these social issues is going to be that relationship between the infinite without and the infinite within It's going to ultimately be a relationship between man and God, but he's going to use the terms of his own social environment to talk about that. And I think that's why he's so, that's why he's so virulent in this passage. It isn't necessarily that the, that the monastic life or the life of the cloister are illegitimate in the conversation about faith what it is is that they are inimical to the social order. Mm-hmm. And that reveals maybe, he does tiptoe up to the line and say that reveals some a misunderstanding, in my view, of the way they think about faith. But I think his main critique comes down to a critique of, of their impact on the social order. Right. I think that's really he helpful. He says it castrates a society because people are basically absenting themselves from participation in community. And yet hovering over all of this while he has the conversation about social progress is this idea that you must die to live. It, right. it comes up over and over again. And so there's, I, w- I think that he might be intentionally pairing the conversation of we absolutely must 
get better as a society. We're not doing good enough. Right. And also all of this is headed towards death. Yeah. What do you guys make of this line? The burden is inflexible and remains the same for the few as for the many. It used to weigh down. Now it crushes. So they die. Since the author of this book lived in Paris, two have died. One was 25 and the other was 23. But he but he is saying they didn't used to. Mm-hmm. Right. So it, there's something to do with the passage of time and the progress of society around these religious institutions that allows him to make his point. I don't know. Maybe I misunderstood that passage, but I couldn't get over the image of the the laws that they've chosen or the rules, as you said, Ian, are inflexible. So even as the number of their order dwindles, there's no account made for for that passage of time. There's still the law is inflexible and rigid and it kills them. Now they don't just serve this good purpose. It's cruel and it's a death penalty to be a nun who has to basically take up all of the rules on her own shoulders. It's it's inhuman. Yeah. That's yeah. where I saw the convent as a as an echoing of the century itself, of the of the nineteenth century, because it reminds me of his conversations about the laws of society and how they're, I mean, it all, they're crushing the women yeah. in particular, but they're crushing everyone because the law is inflexible mm-hmm. and the people are suffering because we're unwilling to change the law to meet the human need. Right. So that seems and to lead us back to our characters. I'm kind of glad about that. I can see that being a bridge <laughs> back to Jean Valjean's story. And I'm thinking of Javert and how he's an embodiment of an inflexible law. And he's got these animalistic qualities that are a picture of what we've just said thematically. This is helpful to talk this out because it felt like, what in the world? This this is worse than what I know is coming, which is the sewers. Like, I, what is this digression for it's if it's for something then we've spent our time really well and i believe that we're finding reasons for it to be here but when he keeps saying just a few words more i stop trusting him after a while that this is going to connect <laughs> back to the story <laughs> well he Victor, i think you really like to hear yourself talk that's the main he, thing he, like two times he says this doesn't have anything to do with my story but but hold on i, I gotta say hold this. on one more thing i just because i want to and it's my book you know <laughs> <laughs> I also wonder, and th- I'm not saying this with any kind of authority, but I picked up a couple of notes here and there throughout this passage of contrast between his view of a cloister and his view of a monastery. I wonder if we're not encountering a little, a little casual misogyny. I noticed here that in too. This passage. Did you did you pick that up? In in the fact that the prioress is more like a monk than a, a nun. Well, yeah, she's well educated, and that's one of the positive and... ones, right? Like he, she, she's more a monk than a than a nun, which is why everybody likes her. But then there's also when even when he goes off on his, so it's it's like he spends the first book saying here are all the reasons to hate convents, and then he says, okay, in the next book, okay, okay, but let's examine the project, and then he and then he gets into the thing Megan was talking about between the, the infinite without and the infinite within and the absolute, well, what's the word he uses? Absolute reverence, not reverence. Prayer is a good thing, right? right? Yep. <laughs> Shorthand. Prayer is a good thing. He does all that stuff, but he can't help himself. Even in the middle of that, where he's trying to take it all back, the, the part uh, about a convent as a historic fact says all sorts of, of where he compares it to the East. The, yeah. the sultan and the sultana. and He calls them dens of terrible devotion, lairs inhabited by virgins, wild and savage places. Then there's this, this weird psychosexual tension in there where 
they talk about it. I'm just going to read it. Yeah, I guess. read it. <laughs> In their dreams, the fervently devout were the chosen ones possessed of Christ. At night, the lovely naked youth descended from the cross and became the rapture of the cell. Yeah. Lofty walls guarded from all the distractions of real life, the mystic sultana who had the crucified for sultan. Right? Like there's, Mm -hmm. he can't really cover up the fact that, yeah, I, I, I wonder if there's a little bit of. That the virginal imagery leads him in a weird way, in a weird path. Well, it, maybe it does. And, and I wonder if. If part of it has to do with his uh, his conception of what participating in society is for, and I wonder if his vision of womanhood is is reducible to the way that a woman participates in society is that she is fruitful and bears children. Well, the the woman question is one of the three diseases of the century, according to the right. opening in the of very the book. beginning, right? Yeah. So an examination of womanhood is definitely on the table from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if we're going to find that we agree with him or not <laughs> on that front. <laughs> I did. I don't know. I had the conscious thought as I was reading this, that it was very, it was a very savage and heavy handed picture of, of convents as a, as a rule. And I think it's really important to notice that he's talking from a particular time of history and about particular iterations of monastic lifestyle I have a friend who is who is in a convent now and her it, interactions and her experience looks nothing like this. And I think right, for right. for any of our listeners who may who may really revere this lifestyle, this is mm-hmm. probably a pretty savage read and maybe maybe one dimensional even. So I was oh, I think so, it yeah. made me a little uncomfortable. I don't know. What did you guys think about that? Do you think that this would oh, could, be off-putting for uh, members of our listenership who may be more revering of this lifestyle? Uh, yeah, I, I I assume that it would be. Um, I agree with you completely. And it also seems clear from his long digression where he, he basically says, here are all of the prioresses in order mm-hmm. over the last 250 years, right? Like he goes through and it's clear that he has chosen the most ascetic, the most rigorous, the most exaggerated version of this idea. Right. He He's making a point. contrasts it to the other perpetual adoration of the Holy Sacrament in Paris. Right. Right. And the other one. Of which is, he approves, by the yeah, way. Yeah. They're much more friendly. They're the, the nuns with the, the rosy, rosy cheeks. cheeks. Ones. Yep. Yeah. 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 And I think maybe what it comes down to is, and this is, this is a line on, on page 516, man lives by affirmation even more than he does by bread. And so there's, there's something about, there's a difference, it seems to me, between, in his view, a monastic life that that is itself an affirmation of it's constructive, yeah, oh, of yeah. life and of the man god relationship and of society and the monastic who dedicates themselves to praying for the world and for mankind. That is an affirmation of the world and of mankind. The kind of affirmation that man lives on more than bread. Yes to life instead of this comment. Instead of abnegation. Abnegation. Mm -hmm. Which is why I think think it isn't that self-denial is ultimately good. It has to be directed at affirmation in Hugo's Hugo's view. Mm. Otherwise, it's nihilism. It's a dressed up version of nihilism. I see. Otherwise, it's a dressed up version of nihilism. And and so I think that that does get him off the hook. Ultimately, he I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. He tiptoes across the line a couple of times. Every so often I want to reach out and slap him. Hey, 
that's overstatement, Hugo, and it's not to a purpose. Right. But but I do think it gets him off the hook when he starts talking about that distinction between affirmation and and abnegation. And I do think Megan is right to remind us that he comes from a particular time in history, in particular a time when France has been through a lot of upheavals. And the violence of reactions is probably causing extremism in positions. Yeah. Right. The, the France had their entire religious system completely gutted not that long ago. And now it's coming back. And I can see, like, like he says, the past is going to try to come back in a different form. And he's like, he's wary. in France, the problem was that everything was too uh, lavish, right? The people were suffering because the king and the ecclesial ecclesiastical system were too rich. Yeah. And the people suffered. And so, like Ian was saying, he's looking at it as a purely social problem mm-hmm. and trying to unpack why it is that that happened and how we can avoid that in the future. Yep. I think you're right. And that's that's where he he can say and still be consistent we distribute our respect here and there and spare the past entirely, provided it consents to be dead. But if it insists on being alive, we attack and try to kill it. <laughs> well, 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 he is well, certainly well. attacking well, it. Well, well, well. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, which, you know, is sort of true. But then also there is a sense in which the past is instructive, Hugo. Yeah. <laughs> <Lest> we forget. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. So, yeah, I think maybe he actually summarizes it for us. If we had just gone here, guys, the whole episode would have been unnecessary. You ready? Yeah. We are for religion against the religions. We are among those who believe in the pitifulness of orisons and in the sublimity of prayer. I would I would be wholeheartedly in agreement if I knew what the word orisons meant. Oh, and your orisons, fair nymph, let me be remembered. Is that it's a, it? It's a word for the kind of, of, of structured uh, worship that he's pillorying. Hmm. I'm I'm still question marking it though. Like he kind of goes out of his way to talk a little pluralistically. That he's 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 like I affirm the impulse where I see it in the convent. I affirm the impulse where I see it in Buddhism and right. Islam. And it's at a certain point you go. Do you are you among those who affirm the incarnation or are you not? Yeah, yeah. Good question. I don't know if we have an answer to that one yet. Although he, he, I mean, let's not forget the line, God is more than just. And every time Jean Valjean makes an appearance, he's very clearly a Christ figure. Mm-hmm. And that Hugo's stated goal, the first character that he's writing about in all this story is God. He told that to us. We got that in this section. My first aim, the main character of my story is the infinite comma God. Yep. Man is second. That, Yeah. That's a really, that's That's, as good a statement as God is more than just. That statement, man is second. I think that puts everything we've read so far into perspective and validates our thematic readings, which is super exciting. Yeah, I think you're right. Well, that was lively. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, yes. (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you both for providing, as always, balance. (laughs) And (laughs) let us all hope and pray for a return of some plot and some characters (laughs) to our next section of reading. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you listeners for being with us. And I don't do this on every single show, but I would love to see you all pop up on our Facebook group and talk about these ideas with us. Let's hear some contrasting perspectives on 
on monasticism. How's that? That would be great. <laughs> yeah, let's uh, because we're getting close to breaking for Christmas. Yeah, so it's going to be. Let's keep up the conversation online. Absolutely. Well, until next time, my friends. Bon appetit. Bon appetit. Bon appetit. Want to follow along with our reading? You can find a link to the schedule in the show notes for this episode. How to Eat an Elephant is a part of the Center for Lit podcast network. Visit our website at www.centerforlit.com to find our other literary shows, resources, and our membership program, The Pelican Society, where you can get access to a variety of live discussion groups. You can also find us on most social media channels. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, happy reading.